all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack Podcast, where I talk to founders, operators, and investors about all things value creation in startups. Today, I am speaking to the founder and CEO of Phantom Space, Jim Cantrell. Jim is a lifelong space executive. He was the CEO of... um, What was it? Vector. Vector Space. I was going to say Varda, but it wasn't Varda. It was Vector. Uh, Following that, he was also members of Strat Space, Vintage vintage Exotic, Competition of Engineering, as well as the managing partner at Wolverine Capital. Uh, Jim was also the first vice president of business development over at SpaceX, Uh, was on one of the founding team, and he knows about all things space, and that's what we were talking about today. Jim, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Good to be here, David. Um, you kind of look like a s- evil supervillain with like the black chair and the black outfit right now. That, that pretty much captures it. Yeah, <laughs> evil supervillain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all entrepreneurs wear black. So do mechanics. So part of it is uh, is for either one of those applications. I was yeah. working on my truck this morning. And, and you're building like a missile that's in like a mountain in a secret layer. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We're a submarine. You can't see what we're doing. <laughs> exactly. Jim, you're doing something pretty incredible right now. You're also an author of a, a book called Breaking All the Rules, which, you know, uh, highlights the space race um, that was really prolific in, in 2021 between Elon, Bezos and Branson. What's going on in the space industry today? From your perspective, you know, I would I would say going up into 2021, um, and then you know what's going on now, and how do you see sure. it going forward? Yeah, so let me give a sort of historical perspective. So when when uh, you know Germany surrendered to the United States after World War II, the United States had an immense amount of scientific discovery that they found the weapon systems the Germans had built that uh, were amazing that we had no idea about and things we did know about. And so that really, uh, that demobilization after World War II continued in a small way. A lot of, a lot of you know, the car factories went back to building cars, washing machine factories quit building bombs and washing machines again. But there was a certain portion of the, the industry that remained intact. And that portion of the industry uh, became what, what Eisenhower called the military industrial complex. And uh, they, they built weapon systems really to defeat the Soviets and protect us from that for decades. And, and the space program was born out of that. It was a competition with the Soviet Union. It was communism versus capitalism on the world stage. And it was a national priority unlike any other. And that's, that really uh, uh, culminated in the uh, Apollo lunar landing in 1969 when uh, two astronauts uh, stepped on the moon for the first time ever in human history. So very much a turning point in history. I was a young, young boy at that time. It's part of what inspired me to get into space. But what, what's happened since then is you had this malaise era that followed 
Uh, you know, we, we gave up going to the moon for various reasons. Uh, built a shuttle that was a magnificent machine, but it was a it was a trip to nowhere, uh, just lunar orbit. And the promise of Apollo was really unfulfilled. Which what the promise of Apollo was really that we would be going to Mars, we would be colonizing the moon. If you watch, you know, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey, that's how we really saw the future back then. You know, and, and a lot of us believe that, and we're very disappointed when. Uh, when the U.S. government, you know, didn't follow through on that, and, and through no real fault of their own, there's a lot of reasons, Vietnam and, and a lot of economic conditions that prevented that from happening. Uh, there was a lot, a whole generation of people that were frustrated with this, and so, you know, this is what I call the space revolutionaries. A lot of us just said, you know, look, we try to go work for NASA, they're not doing anything, the companies aren't doing anything, we want to do something, so we're just going to do it ourselves. And so that created this uh, revolutionary spirit. There was, there was a, a small number, but very dedicated number of people from the space industry that were just looking for something to go forward with. And Elon Musk turned out to be that answer back in 2001. You know, I personally got involved with the Russian uh, space uh, program as well as the French because they were flying to Mars and nobody else was. And, uh, you know, by the time Elon came along, he, he didn't walk into a vacuum and create what SpaceX is today. He walked into a very fertile field, planted more seeds with his uh, money and his uh, entrepreneurial spirit, and that's what started SpaceX. And you know, his idea started really as a uh, as a, an idea of sending a plant growth chamber to Mars and trying to inspire humanity. It turned out that he found out the better thing was to do was to just build the infrastructure to go to Mars, and that's what SpaceX is about today. So what you've seen happen is there was there were several waves of things. You saw the billionaires come in. Elon was the leading billionaire there. There were others that came before him. Andrew Beal, for example, he started and failed. He was a billionaire banker out of Texas. And then Jeff Bezos, about the same time as SpaceX started into this. And, and so that billionaire-fueled space company then made space safe for investment. And prior to this, most commercial space was done on debt deals. There were big geostationary satellites. Not the kind of thing we're seeing today, which is a very dynamic entrepreneurial kind of environment. SpaceX did that, really. And uh, there were a couple of successes like Skybox Imaging, which I was part of. We built spy satellites for a million dollars instead of a billion, sold that to Google for half a billion. You know, that, all these things came together and made space the place to, to put you know, high-risk, uh, you know, deep-tech investments. And so you saw that play out over a number of years, a decade, in fact, and it culminated, I think, at its peak in about 2021. And uh, you mentioned that in your intro, that uh, that was when there was, you know, probably the highest amount of investment that's come into, into this business since I've been around it. And what this has done is it's fueled the, the, the smaller and smaller satellites that have come along. So they've also drawn on the, on the broader, you know, development of, of micro technologies, what's in our cell phones, what's in our computers. So the cost and the size of all these satellites have come down. The price of launch has come down. So it's this proliferation, kind of like computers were when I was in, in, in the university in the 80s, right? They were just new on the, on the market, the personal computer. And that's what space has done. And so today what you, know, what you see is, is the result of um, you know, a couple of bad years of economics. Blame it on what you like. But uh, you know, the markets are tough right now. So we're going to see a culling over the next... Uh, over the next year or two of a lot of these space companies that gorged themselves on investor money and didn't they weren't very good stewards of it and uh, you know we'll see some bankruptcies we'll see some flushing out we'll see a lot of people prognosticating that 
the end of space is here, but it won't be because this is the new frontier. This is this is what the new world was to the Spaniards 500 years ago, right? If you were standing on the shores of Spain and looking, you would say, "Oh, well, that's nice. They're bringing back loads of gold, but you know, what are we going to do with all that land?" Well, nobody could imagine, nobody's smart enough to imagine 500 years later what would be created here. You and I sit in Arizona. They didn't know about Arizona. They didn't know what was out here. And the same is true of the space economy and, and, and the, new, the new frontier in space. And we will conquer it. And in 500 years, nobody, nobody on this earth knows what it's going to be. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things. I mean, we look at it as the new frontier, but as us, as our infinite selves can view it, this might be the last frontier or the final frontier. Yeah, we don't know. I mean, we're not smart enough to know that, right? And uh, this gets a little metaphysical, but you know, how, how would we travel to the stars? The, the, the closest star, I think, is like 24 light years away. That means if you're light, it takes you 24 years to get there. It's just not practical. We don't understand physics in a sense that, that Einstein described as time wraps around. Maybe there are such things as wormholes that we can travel through, right? And, and in 500 years, maybe we'll have understood that and be able to manipulate it. We just don't know. I mean, you go back a thousand years to when the Vikings were, you know, first coming to North America, they had no idea, you know, and if you told them about nuclear energy and nuclear bombs, you know, probably got burned at the stake. And, and so the same thing is true when you start talking about this being the final frontier. We, we just don't know where it all goes. There, there may be frontiers within the frontier. And so how does space exploration, space tech, deep tech, how does that also kind of weave into defense tech? Because I feel like those are two very, you know, um, tightly conjoined industries. Yeah, they're very related, as it turns out. Uh, I spent many years doing defense work, classified space warfare stuff. And, you know, part of what we're doing at Phantom is to develop capabilities that help save the military from themselves. You know, I, I mentioned you know, that, that the industri military-industrial complex rose and is still around, and they're very inefficient at building innovative new things, and that's just a fact. And if you're a CEO of one of the big three companies, you can hate me all you want, but it's a fact. And uh, so the smaller, more agile uh, commercial startups are the ones that are going to develop the new technology that will become dual-use for, for our military. Skybox, I mentioned earlier, is a prime example. It's now part of Planet. And uh, if you watch the news, you know, a lot of, a lot of the imagery, the overhead imagery you see comes from Planet, comes from that stuff we did, you know, 15 years ago, uh, you know, right after SpaceX started. So, so you'll see this more and more happen. And, and I think it, you know, just in terms of philosophy, this is the rightful role of government, which is to be mission oriented. The government in my business, in my thinking, has no business being uh, in, in, the, in the part of manufacturing launch vehicles and satellites and things like that. So. You know, NASA, for example, I always joke that they'd make an iPhone and sell it if they thought they'd get away with it because it supports their job base. But thankfully, they're not very they're efficient at that sort of thing. So living in a, in a market economy, gradually these things work themselves out. And uh, it's not so I view it not only as a patriotic thing to do, but it's 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 a good financial thing to do being in the in the uh, startup space. What's more patriotic than watching your country launch a rocket? <laughs> yeah, watching your country do the right thing, I would say. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. exactly. Now, watching a rocket's a—it's—it's it's almost a religious experience, and uh, until you've experienced it, you, it's hard to believe. But it is—it's—it's it's so much power being released, you know, in such a such a short period of time that you 
it's it's overwhelming, right? And I can remember being brought to tears a couple of times watching these these big rockets take off, I, and I still am, am captivated by it. So, taking a, a history lesson, going back to um, you know the, the the kind of the space race, the, the the tensions between the United States and China, the United States and Russia, capitalism versus communism. Was this just a general insecurity that these governments had and they just forced themselves to start doing that? Were there back-channel conversations about, like, the directives of, of these, like, like moon landings? I mean, how did they just look at it as a barometer for their own research and development success? Is, can we land on the moon? Or was there something tied to a greater outcome for that? I think it's a very complex issue. It's a great question you ask. Um, you know, I go back to again Germany, and if you look at the you know their their ME six two sixty two, which was the first real operational uh, jet fighter, and they and produced any significant numbers. Had they deployed those years earlier, which they could have, if they had made different decisions, the outcome of the war might have been different. So people in that war began to understand the importance of technology as an outcome of our very national security. And you don't have to look very far today. I mean, I, I know Iron Dome didn't work against you know, the 5,000 Hamas missiles that came across, but you know that, that has protected Israeli citizens for years and years and years. So there's definitely you know, a tie between national security and our technolo- technological prowess. So, so there's always that in the back of everybody's minds. And it's hard for a lot of people, particularly younger people, to understand that the Soviet Union meant us harm. And they, they were not our friend. They were a communist system, which the, the goal of communism, the stated goal of communism, was to destroy the bourgeois and, and the capitalists, right? And uh, they were coming to, coming to take our lunch away and to uh, take our homes away and tell us what to do. And so this was, a, this was an existential fear on the part of everyone. I experienced it myself. You know, I'm, I'm 58 years old, and I grew up under the, under the Soviet threat. So it was very, very, very real. And when the uh, Soviets were actually the first people to put a man in space, that had real implications, right? So a person probably doesn't weigh as much as a nuclear warhead, but it wasn't very far to extrapolate the ability to put multiple nuclear warheads on a rocket and place it in your backyard. And, and that became personal to each and every one in this country. And this, this country's not been since 1812 that we've had foreign troops on, on the lower 48 states, right? So it's, it's largely forgotten. The Civil War is forgotten. And these, these foreign wars we've experienced have had very, very little, if any, uh, impact on, on directly on, on people living here. So this is something that motivated people. And what you, what you also saw on top of this was the, this sense of competition. And, and there was a sense that, and it still is out there, that we had to show the world that, that capitalism was better and stronger and, and a better system than communism. And, you know, if you go back into post-World War II, Italy almost became communist. Greece almost became communist. There was a great sentiment of wanting to be taken care of. And, of course, this is what the communists tell you. They just don't tell you that they're going to destroy your life afterwards. So, so you know, there was a great sense, particularly in the early 60s, of having to combat that worldwide. So call it propaganda, whatever you want to call it. It was a very real feeling. That all fueled you know, the, the initial NASA and the initial uh, moon program. And that was a great motivator, and we got it done. And so after, you know, the 
the, I guess the world went in peacetime, quote unquote peacetime. A lot of these space projects were shelved and people like you and other, you know, they, they said, what, what happened, right? We were going to do all these great things. You moved to Europe. You're starting to work with, you know, you know different types of uh, foreign nationalists working on different types of space programs. And now we're not so much in a peaceful world anymore. Right, and we have we have private enterprise working on projects that have far surpassed anything the government's been able to manufacture, um, and probably far beyond what the primes right are being able to manufacture or innovate towards. So where does where where do we sit now from a value chain on funding you know government dollars? you know, for national security away from the primes and into earlier stage companies that are more innovative. How hard is that? And, and to like, and are they more open than they used to be? Yeah, another good question. Um, so, so my view of the primes, and they won't necessarily subscribe to my view of them, but I think, you know, the, 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 the geopolitical and economic forces will place them there. Is they're really extensions of the government and, and are becoming more and more mission oriented. So, what startups aren't good at, for example, is what, what the big, the big uh, primes are, which is integration of mission. And, you know, so when you get involved with national security site type things, there are clearances, right? And those are long lead items and it's overhead, it's expensive to maintain and so on. Uh, so, so you've got to have the right people that have the talent and, and are able to be cleared and uh, were basically angels when they were young. They have to have you know tools that understand the whole system is how it plays out, right? You can't just build a rocket to shoot a rocket down. You have to understand how this fits into a system of systems. That's what the primes are good at. They're becoming less and less good as they've grown to, you know, it's like being married to somebody. You become more and more like your, your, your spouse after years and years of living with them. Same is true of, you know, these primes and the government. They start to look and act more like the government, uh, which has got its right role. And if the government's mission-oriented, so will the primes. So then the value chain becomes really a supply chain kind of proposition, which, which it ought to be in a capitalist system. Anyhow, if we can provide the products at a lower level that they integrate into the, into the mission-oriented type things for defense, then that's a better deal for the taxpayer. It's a better deal for society, and we're going to be more effective at defending ourselves. So that's really where it's going. And you know, even at, and at our level at Phantom Space, we're sort of, I would call it a mid-tier integrator, where we, we build our launch vehicles. We don't build all the parts ourselves, unlike SpaceX. You know, we build satellites, same thing. We build some of them, we don't build some of them, we buy it. And uh, so there's always going to be that lower level of suppliers that's always critical. And if you don't have those, for example, you, know, you have supply chain security. So you know the DoD has a has a uh, uh, an issue with uh, foreign suppliers, and so we stick to all U.S. suppliers because of supply chain security. There is sabotage that occurs on our supply chain from a defense point of view. So it's a very complicated issue that that you know I I don't know if I feel fortunate, but I've you know lived through all these things over over the last 35 years, and at least kind of can see where this is all going, but it, it's a more complicated world than it was 30 years ago by far. I was just talking to somebody this morning that I, sometimes I wish for the old Soviet times when it was, you know, you could, when I was a kid, you could, you know, go, uh, go around the neighborhood when your parents were at work and you just had to tell them where you're going. They didn't worry about them. And now, you worry about your kids getting, you know, molested and kidnapped. Totally, and yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's just it's, a different world completely. And, and, and internationally, it's the same thing, right? You, you know, 
am I going to get killed at this con- con- uh, concert? It's not something people think about. Mm-hmm. And so if I get this correct, so basically the gateways to government dollars in at least the immediate term is entrenched with the primes, but companies like Phantom, companies that have scale, will now be layered in their supply chain, you know, in order to be able to get products out quicker, right? As opposed to you trying to go directly to the government and unlock those processes. In some cases, we do. So Phantom has a $300 million NASA contract for launch services. We have several proposals into the DOD for launch services. Uh, you know, the, the primes are talking to us about satellite supply. So it just depends on the product and, and you know, the government will go direct for some things and, and indirect for others. And so when you're building a company like this where, you know, you're getting these contracts, you have uh, essentially these, these lead times and these, you know, opportunities, how do you think of as a startup founder who's, you know, been scrappy and has been very capital efficient? What, what opportunities you go after, you can't do everything, you know, right. what, are the, yeah, what are the milestones <laughs> you need to unlock, you know, additional capital, um, right. dot, dot, dot. So, so, yeah, it's a great question again. And, uh, you know, we have a strategy that's focused around capital formation, honestly. That's sort of, you have to, when you optimize something, you have to optimize around something. And we optimize around capital formation. So, as you mentioned, we're scrappy. And so we want to get to the most significant first milestone with the minimum amount of capital possible. And, you know, there's a lot of tactics going to that, but that's the strategy. And, and our first major milestone is our first launch, which we're about a year away from. And once that happens, we become a billion dollar plus, you know, unicorn in valuation. And capital is much easier to raise because it's a different tranche of capital. It becomes... It becomes the you know the growth capital. It becomes the the people who are later stage. You know we'll have revenue by then. We've got a proven product and so forth. Not out of the woods by any means, but you know now capital becomes less expensive and it's more available. So so you start to layer on some of the other things later. So we think of in Phantom, we think of the launch vehicle as a bit of our foundation of the house, if you will, and that we build all these other business uh, verticals on top of it. And so SpaceX has famously vertically integrated their technology. In other words, they build everything in-house. In fact, Elon one time asked me to see if we could put together a scanium mine so we could make scanium aluminum alloys, right? And that's how vertically integrated he thinks. I'm quite the opposite, right? Um, But, you know, our products then become the vertical integration. So we'll build satellites. I was just on a call earlier this morning with a deal we're putting together where you know, we're going to build their, their first couple of satellites and then, you know, we'll, we'll assist them in raising more money. That money comes back to us, buys our launch vehicles, we build the satellites. So it's, it's that kind of ecosystem we're trying to create, much like Apple. I'm a big fan of Apple. And, uh, you know, I bought the first computer from Apple. I hated Apple for most of my life until I didn't. When I bought the first computer, I said, wow, this works great. Now I've got iPhones, iPads, you know, watch, you know, earbuds. I got, I got everything, everything from Apple, and so that that and and I become very price insensitive, right? Three hundred or three hundred dollars for a set of earbuds. Oh yeah, that sounds fine. So I go and do it. (laughs) (laughs) What's that? You know, I live on them. Right. You know, three thousand dollars for a good computer. Oh yeah, I can buy a PC for three hundred. You know. Okay, I just don't want it, and and these last longer. So it's that ecosystem we're creating, and ultimately, 
we'll build our own constellations like Starlink, not to compete with them, but that, that's the basic idea. Weather constellations, other communication uh, constellations at about half the capitalization of the rest of the, the industry. So that's how we'll dominate ultimately. What needs to change? Because obviously there, there, there we're in turmoil right now. You know, we're sending, you know, armaments all over. This kind of goes in the defense piece, but also in the aerospace piece. You're, you, you, I, I would say the supply chain is probably very similar. Yes. Um, what's going on with the aerospace and defense supply chain right now? And, you know, what, what do we need to do to improve it? So it's... So airline uh, supply chain is sort of a proxy for where we're at. And if you look there, so so the very large jumbos, those orders have gone away. And and COVID really shocked the system. It shocked it from a number of points of view. Uh, In in airlines, it was a little different than than space and defense. We we didn't have that demand drop suddenly. So so airlines are kind of like the poster child for how the supply chain is, is, is in trouble in this country. And, you know, with the orders, uh, and Boeing in particular puts in big orders and then rescinds them when they get to, you know, actually doing it. But the companies that are supplying them have to think years ahead on materials, on staffing, on all the facilities, these things that, that are costing them dollars today that Boeing and, and Airbus and some of these others might not fall through, follow through on. Defense has been a little bit better that way uh, because, again, you, you mentioned shooting wars and, you know, that's good for business when you're in defense, right? And uh, I'm personally against all of this, but, you know, it is good for business. And, uh, the, you know, the supply chain's doing okay. We're, we're having a, an interesting phenomenon in the United States in space supply chain in that a lot of these companies that, that create new products that a sudden it, it just, there's so much demand for them, they can't keep up with them. They're getting bought. They're getting bought by companies who want to internalize that supply chain and they take the, the supply chain off the market. And that's even happening in Europe to some extent. And so there's this constant demand. And it, you know, my, my advice to your investors is, if you want to invest in the, in the space supply chain, that's, you're going to do fine if you get a good team that can do something and you're not as capital efficient as a mid, mid-tier supplier like us, uh, you know, it, it's, it's okay. And, and we just can't find enough parts, for example, valves, um, we can't get people to make our valves in enough time and at the right price, so we build them ourselves. I don't like doing it, but we have to. We're going to have to do the same thing with spacecraft components as, as we get into production on things. So that's, that's really where the supply chain is, you know, and that's different from where it was in 2000. There was a great supply chain when we started SpaceX, actually technically 2001, uh, but, but it was very costly because it reflected the, the cost paradigm of the government uh, business sector. And that's why SpaceX, if you wonder why they ver- vertically integrate the tech, it was to control the costs. And that was very true back then. But one, there's a halo effect that's happened from SpaceX, which is very important to understand. Once people got their exits from SpaceX and left, and, uh, you know, Elon's notoriously uh, famous for burning people out, and he gets the most out of them, is the way I'd put it, uh, they start their own businesses. So like our engine suppliers, a major uh, former SpaceX guys, and they built SpaceX engines, and now they're building them for us. So there's a, there's a nascent supply chain that's coming out of these these successful uh, entrepreneurial space companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin, and, and that's a good thing. What do you think about you know the the, the consolidation or automation of the machining? Have you ever have you seen Hadrian? 
yeah. for instance? Yeah, I think some of these uh, ideas are a little far-fetched for today, but in, in the long run, that's where it's going to go. You know, so, so one of my, uh, I moved to Tucson about 15 years ago. Uh, yeah, 15 years ago. And one of the things I was surprised by was the amount of automation and manufacturing that I found here. And uh, I have another business. I build uh, race car parts. And I was able to have this all made very economically here in, in Tucson. I didn't have to deal with the Chinese stealing, you know, my designs and selling them on eBay. And uh, I think that that, 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 that that revolution is just going to continue. One of the things people haven't begun to factor in is the effect of AI. And I think it's very nascent right now. Uh, you know, the, the money, I think, has been placed in AI for that capability to develop. But its effect on the next level of manufacturing, on information management, on even enterprise management has yet to be seen. And it's going to do exactly what you say, which is to automate more and more of this sort of thing. So, you know, at the end, at the end of the product, right, the, the machine tool still has to hit the metal and go around in circles and make holes and so on. But the more efficiently we can do that with less human touch labor, it's, it's going to be faster, more, more quantity, and cheaper. So, so that, that's where this is all going. Space is starting to make that transition. That's one of the things we're trying to do at, at Phantom Space is to bring that technology to bear on launch vehicles, on satellites, to bring the cost down, therefore making the access more widely available, less expensive, and more rapid. Awesome. Jim, thank you so much for your time. I know that My you're pleasure. super busy. You're building rockets, right? Yeah, so. right. In, in, in black. <laughs> in black. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, before we depart, some quick can questions. Um, what's the best piece of business advice you've ever received? <laughs> Never, ever give up. Ever. <laughs> I love it. And what is uh, the best book you, you like to give out? You know, besides my own breaking all the rules, I give a lot of those out. Um, the best book I ever read, frankly, was uh, Richard Bach's Illusions. And uh, it's a story about a, uh, a reluctant messiah. And uh, he started out as an auto mechanic, and people found out he could fix them and uh, fix their, their lives. And he got tired of fixing people's lives, and he just left. And he started flying a plane around the country, sort of randomly meeting people. It's a fantastic tale. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We drop an episode every week where we talk to the world's best entrepreneurs and founders and investors. If you like it, please subscribe, tell a friend, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.